Great to see everybody here. Um, welcome. Uh, it, it is a blessing to get to gather together every Sunday. I feel like I say that a lot, um, but I, I really do believe it is. It's such a privilege uh, for us to be able to come together and to, to sing the way that we did and uh, to be able to just sit and, and listen to God's Word and let that be something that, that cuts into our hearts and forms us. Um, and I just think there's something special that God does when His people come together and uh, are, are all asking Him to move and, and do something in our lives. And uh, man, I have been praying that that is something that God is going to do this morning. I know for a lot of us, like, coming here on a Sunday morning, it's routine, it's just kind of part of your schedule. Maybe you don't even necessarily think about why you're doing it. Maybe you didn't think about why you ended up here this morning. But I want you to know, I've been praying for you. I've been praying that God is going to come and move, and I believe that there's some, some really powerful work that he needs to do in some people's hearts this morning. And so I hope that we come with expectation that God is here among us, and that he's going to work in us. You know, I'm particularly thankful for the opportunity to preach this morning because we're going to be talking about something that is extremely weighty in our lives and in our culture. It's something that's essential for the continuation of human life on our planet. It has an unbelievably powerful influence on our thoughts and our actions. And it might be one of the greatest points of difference between the culture that we find ourselves living in and the culture of God's kingdom. You know, this semester we've been doing this series called Kingdom Culture, and in it, uh, we've been examining what life should look like in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and when I use that phrase, kingdom of God, I, I really just mean <clears throat> the society where God is treated as king and honored as king and obeyed as king, where people live in line with his commandments. And this kingdom is already here to some degree, right? Like Jesus came and he was, he was talking about repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he brought this in to some degree as, as Christians. We've actually been people that are made new creations. We have a new citizenship, that our citizenship is now part of this kingdom of God more so than any uh, particular country that we may identify ourselves with here. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's interesting because Paul wrote that after Jesus had already come, and he says, we eagerly await a Savior. And, that, and that's the thing. Jesus came, and he accomplished salvation by dying on the cross and raising again, but he's also going to come a second time. And in that, with that first time, he started to bring this kingdom in, but when he comes the second time, he will bring it in in fullness. And so we eagerly await that time where everything is going to be in line with God's will. There's not going to be any more curse, no more pain, sickness, death, crying, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we eagerly await the coming of that kingdom, but we are not in it quite yet, not fully at least. And you know, the culture that we find ourselves living in right now is in tension with this coming kingdom of God. We want to live in this culture as people that reflect the culture of the heavenly kingdom rather than the one that we find ourselves living in, which is oftentimes in rebellion. And you know, not everything about our earthly cultures are bad, but there are places where the values and practices of our earthly culture is in conflict with the culture of God's kingdom. And one of the biggest places where these two kingdoms clash is in the area of sex. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the place and understanding of sex in the kingdom of God? <clears throat> this might be a question that you never thought about before. For some of you, it might even make you uncomfortable. Uh, associating sex and God, they seem like uh, two things that aren't supposed to mix, right? A lot of us have this belief, even if it's subconscious, especially if you grew up in the church, uh, that sex is something that doesn't really have a place in God's kingdom. To many of us, it's something that feels unholy or dirty, to many of us, both Christians and people that are not yet Christians, it can seem like God hates sex. And this can leave us frustrated because the, for the vast majority of us, sex is something that we actually have a really strong internal desire for. And we don't know what to do with this feeling as we're caught between our intense natural desires and a perception that to fulfill them is wrong. And so we have to ask, does God hate sex? Is he against it? 
Does he just tolerate it as something that's a necessary evil for humans? And I say no. God doesn't hate sex. God does more than just tolerate it. In fact, I aim to show you this morning that God has an extremely positive view of sex and a design for it that's way more beautiful than most of us grasp. However, the answer to that does not mean that we should create a sex-crazed culture like the one that we live in right now. And so this morning, we're going to look at God's design for sex, see how it compares to the predominant view of sex in our culture, and then we'll discuss how we can be people that think and act in line with God's design for sex rather than being swept away by the powerful cultural current that we live in when it comes to this area. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Um, God, I just thank you so much for who you are. Um, I thank you that you are a good and holy and awesome God, Um, that you're our creator, that you know us best, that that your, your creation is good, Lord, even if it's broken. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and and be here and move in our hearts this morning. God, even if we came here with no expectation this morning of any kind, I I just pray that you would remove distractions from us, even remove cynicism or anything like that, and just help us to be people that sit under your word and let your word form the way that we think and the way that we act. God, we love you so much. I thank you for the fact that you are good and that your commands are good. And so we love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 1. It's the very first uh, book of the Bible, very first chapter. Uh, We're going to start there. And uh, in this, we are going to see the story of God's creation of people. By the way, if you don't own a Bible and you want one, you can uh, get one from our welcome table when you leave. Or you can run back there and grab one right now if you want to. But I'm also going to have text on the screen here. So this is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. So God has been creating all these different things, and finally he says this in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, And all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we'll stop there for right now. Uh, That's what I like to call the kind of big picture uh, account of creation. Genesis 1 kind of helps us fly through this, and we see the creation of of, uh, mankind, male and female there at the end of it. And then in chapter 2, it kind of comes back and and zooms in a little bit more and gives us some more detail about that uh, creation of human beings. And so we're going to look at that as well here in Genesis chapter 2. We'll we'll skip ahead to verse 18. Uh, So this is after God has already created the man. It says, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, 
and they felt no shame. Okay, we'll stop there. So there's so much that's going on in these passages, right? Like, we could write books on on everything that's going on here, but there's three particular things that I want to point out from these passages that show us uh, God's design for sex. And, And the first one I want you to see is that God blesses and encourages marital sex. Okay? As a matter of fact, the first recorded instruction in the whole Bible that God gives to man and woman, what is it? Be fruitful and increase in number. Right? Like literally the first instruction that we have recorded there, Genesis chapter 1, that God speaks uh, to, to male and female is be fruitful and increase in number. I trust that by now you all know how that happens. Um, the, so God is actually commanding this as something that is necessary for the mission that he has given them, which is to rule over all of the earth, right? And why does God want them to rule over the earth? Well, we are his uh, distinct image bearers, right? Everything is created by him, but it says that only for male and female were we the ones that were created in his image. So as we're created in his image and as we multiply and we rule the earth and subdue it, we're actually going as like little representatives of God that are spreading his glory all throughout this earth and showing his control over all of it as we rule over it as sub-rulers. And so we see that God has actually... Design sex is something that is necessary for uh, human beings to even carry out this task that he has given us to live for his glory and spread it throughout the earth. And we can see, secondly, that sex was part of God's good design. It's not something that came after the fall, right? We saw that in Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, right? This is after he told them the be fruitful and multiply thing. Right? It's, it's not like sex was some sort of sinful, broken thing that came into the world. We see uh, in the zoomed-in version there in, in uh, Genesis 2, 25, after God explains this process of even what's going to happen where uh, the, the man and the woman will be joined together as one flesh, right after it says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, nothing like that. Sex is not some sort of uh, corrupting influence that was brought into the world after the fall. And the third thing that we see from these passages is that God's good design for sex involves both distinction and unification. All right, we see this very clearly here. Uh, with distinction, look at how this is pointed out. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every single human being is created in the image of God. But it also points out very clearly here and wants you to see, I've created male and I have created female. And and these two together actually come to to bear this image of God that we're called to to bear. This diversity in God's creation um, is, is shown very clearly. They are distinct from one another, but they are not independent from each other. God intentionally created both male and female in his image, and they needed each other to be able to fulfill this mission. And so there's distinction, but they also are brought together and unified. So Genesis 2.24 shows us, right after actually just showing this whole idea of distinction, right? Where Adam, it says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs something else. And so there's even this one that's bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, taken out from him. You see that distinction, but then we see right after that, that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You see both distinction and unification. Male and female are designed to be powerfully united. And this joining is so powerful that it's described as being one flesh. Now, why is it that God would design his creation this way? Right, you think about it, like, you're God, you can create everything. Like, you can literally, he's, he's speaking things into existence. Why is he created this way? He could have done it however he wanted to. And you know, the, the Bible, of course, I, I can't tell you this is the answer for sure, but I think when I, when I look at who God is and, and what the Bible is teaching us that sex communicates, I think the reason that he did it this way is because uh, this is something that shows diversity in union. The bringing together of two different parties to become one is something that tells us so much about who God is. Because this is actually what he does with us. Right? You look through the Bible, 
Look at how often you see marriage metaphors being used with our relationship with God. You see these covenants that, that uh, God would make a covenant with Israel, and um, then when they would, would be unfaithful, it's consistently compared to adultery. And, and then later in the New Testament, um, Paul writes this in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start reading at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul's giving these Ephesian church here instructions about how their, their marriage is supposed to work, and he's pointing out to them, do you realize how holy your marriage is? Do you realize what is being communicated here? He goes back to Genesis 2 when God shows us uh, his whole design for marriage, of how he, he makes these two distinct parties, but then they're designed to come together and glory him. And he's saying, you know what that's supposed to be pointing to? Christ in the church. He says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm speaking about Christ in the church. As we become one flesh with, with one another, what, what happens when, when you uh, ex- accept Jesus, you, you believe in the gospel, you are, you are brought together with him. It says we become part of his body. And so sex is actually something that's supposed to be picturing uh, the, the unification that God wants with us even. The joining of a husband and wife together is designed to show the picture of Christ and his church being unified together. Sex, as God designed it, is meant to be a window into the beauty of the gospel. Right? Because what is, what is the gospel teaching us? That we were distinct, that we were different, we were far. We have God who's holy, we have us who's not. But, but in Christ, God de- breaks down that separating wall brings us to himself and says, hey, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to wipe out everything that separates from you, and I'm going to bring you together that you may be one with me. And so hopefully you can see now that sex is not something that God hates. It's not something that has no place in the life of a Christian, but rather it's actually something that's really good and really holy. It's not something that we should be scared of, but rather something that should be treated as sacred. It's good in so many ways. It gives us a picture of the gospel. It shows the the beauty of God's creation, that he is one that that loves to bring these two uh, distinct parties together in beautiful union. As a matter of fact, when you even just look at creation, the most beautiful places in creation are where you see these two distinct things meeting, right? Why do people love waterfront property so much? Why do you love going to the beach? You see that distinct ocean meeting with with the beach or you see that lake meeting with the shore and uh, you you know why do we love to go to the mountains we see the 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 mount the tip of the mountain meeting the the sky you see this this beauty of these two distinct things being brought together in one you know sex not only is it something that points us to the gospel but obviously it's, it's the mechanism by which god even gives us the opportunity to sustain life and to to be little creators that go and continue to create image bearers. It's something that's powerfully unifying, and frankly, it's something that's very enjoyable, right? And, and God doesn't hate pleasure either. Like, he designed your body. And he's made it enjoyable for a reason. You know, our culture only scratches the surface in seeing the beauty, value, and desirability of sex. It grasps the fact that it feels good, but misses the bigger picture of what it's designed to communicate. And unfortunately, our culture has cheapened sex to nothing more than a physical activity that's primarily self-seeking, and this leads to disastrous results. You know, the, the Bible is very clear. We, we have an enemy, Satan, and he seeks to spread lies right? Like, that, that's what he does. Jesus talked about, like, like, when he lies, he's speaking his native language. 
And there are so many lies, I'll bet, that even in this room we are holding on to in the area of sex. We probably have a lot of shame, a lot of brokenness. Many of us have sinned in this area, been sinned against in this area, developed brokenness, baggage, dissatisfaction, addictions. But I believe that God wants to do some healing this morning. And so I'm going to move on here to helping us see the way that our culture's view of sex is contrary to the way that God teaches us to view it. And as I do this, I don't want you to see this as an attack on you personally if you found yourself living in some of these kind of things, right? Like if you found yourself in in the midst of sexual brokenness, I see you more as a victim than an enemy, right? Like, and I'm right there with you too. Like I have my past of sexual brokenness. I still battle uh, trying to see it God's way versus seeing it uh, the way that my culture does. But God wants to form us into people that reflect who he is and reflect the values of his kingdom. And so I just want to show you a few places where this clash is really evident. And when it comes to sex, one of the biggest clashes is the idea of autonomy versus authority. Our culture tells you that your body is your own, that you have total authority over it, and you can do whatever you want to do with it, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. And this sounds reasonable, right? Like, can you think of anything that seems or feels more personal than your own body? Probably not, right? Like, it's about as personal as it gets. However, to think that your body is your own, that's actually not a biblical view, right? The Bible teaches us that God is the owner of everything simply by virtue of him being the creator. Psalm 24:1: the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns everything, including the very people that live in the world. And if you are a Christian, God especially owns your body. He bought you with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, writing the Christians here, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, the scripture actually calls us to be people that offer up our bodies to God as living sacrifices. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God cares about what we do with our bodies, and he actually has ownership over them. Failing to see that he has authority over everything, including our bodies, causes us to reject what he says and come up with our own ways that are contrary to his. And some of the ways that I see that happening in our culture. Well, one is that we've even rejected his authority to create us as male and female. It's become increasingly popular in our culture to reject God's authority to create us as male and female, and rather to say that we have the authority to choose what we are, whether we're male, whether we're female, or whether we're something else. And this is a rejection of his authority and his wisdom in creating us. We rejected his authority to tell us what kind of sexual activity we can participate in. And guys, we've done this in many, many ways. Whenever we rebel against one of God's commandments uh, when it comes to sex, which we do a lot, um, that, that can kind of be fall, thrown into this category of sexual immorality. It's a, it's a Greek word, pornea. It's a very um, inclusive word. It's, it's including all sorts of different sexual behavior. Uh, you can see it all throughout the scripture. Um, but really, w- the way you can boil this word down, and I don't have time to get into it too much here, but I can talk with you more about it later if you want to. Uh, really, you, you can see that it, it pretty much boils down to everything that is, out, that is sex outside the bounds of that marriage covenant that we saw formed in Genesis 2.24 would fall under this idea of being sexual immorality. And this comes as a result, honestly, of us rejecting God's authority and thinking that we know better. Romans 1.21-25 says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, 
they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so this thing that Paul is saying that has plunged us into even all kinds of sexual morality is this rejection of God's authority. Thinking that we're wise when actually we're becoming foolish. And worshiping created things rather than the creator. So the scripture gives us all sorts of prohibitions uh, about sexual practice. I'm sure you're familiar with quite a, few, uh, quite a few of these things, right? Things like adultery, incest, prostitution, homosexual behavior, uh, any, any sort of sex that's outside of marriage. And these prohibitions are probably the reason that people get the false impression that God is against sex, even though he totally isn't. But rather, God is against the cheapening of sex, which is every sexual practice that's outside the bounds of marriage. Any kind of sex outside of marriage fails to give that beautiful picture that the gospel is designed to be of diversity and union. And usually it falls on, the, the, the failure is on that union side, right? Like when, you, when you're having sex and you're not within a marriage covenant, you're failing to communicate the kind of commitment that God has to us when he unifies with us. You know, another area that I see us struggling in our culture with this is, is an exploration versus exclusivity. Sex in our culture is seen as something that's casual. It's perfectly acceptable to participate in with lots of different people, even desirable, right? Uh, in, in many ways, that's actually counsel that you get. Hey, you know, go out and, you know, try a few different people. And see, see what you like. The idea of, like, you test drive the car before you buy it, Right? And this kind of advice is unfortunately really, really foolish and misguided, as it misses the picture of how uh, sex is designed to be something that is very powerful, unifying. Remember what we saw in Genesis 2. This is not something that's light, right? It's this idea of the two becoming one flesh. And some would say that that's only talking about marriage, and I do believe that Genesis 2 is talking about marriage, but we see that sex and marriage are completely designed within the bounds of each other. Like, that's the only way they're supposed to happen is together. And Paul even shows the seriousness of how sex connects us, even with others that we participate with in casually. In 1 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, Do you not know that one who unites himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. There is no such thing as casual sex. And, and that is a, a terrible lie that our culture feeds to us. The scripture never treats it as something that's casual. The connection that's formed is not something to be taken lightly. And this is why, once again, it doesn't make, sex to have some, to have, doesn't make sense to have sex with someone that's not your spouse. It's only a deep commitment of marriage, in that deep commitment of marriage, that you're ready to experience that kind of physical intimacy. Again, the commitment and exclusivity of sex point us towards our union with Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't go for a test drive before choosing to commit to us. My favorite Bible verse, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said, full send. I'm not going to back into this. I'm not going to kind of try to decide one foot in, one foot out if I'm with you. I am going to commit to you before I unify with you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. God has initiated the covenant with us. And if we choose that we are going to unite as one flesh with someone else, that is only supposed to be done in the context of committing to them full send first. Covenant comes before consummation. And you know, when sex is practiced within this, this depth of the marriage covenant, it, it, it provides a kind of depth that can't be had if the commitment isn't there. Exploration may give you a lot of different experiences, but exclusivity gives you a depth that exploration can't. You see, within covenant, there's trust. You don't have to put on a performance. You don't have to be worried about abandonment or feeling like you're being judged or compared. And this points us to the way that God is committed to us 
the kind of covenant he wants to have with us, right? Hebrews 13.5 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the way that our God unites to us. You know, another area our culture is off in this area of sex is in impulse versus image. In our culture, sex is about satisfying urges. For some reason, we've developed this kind of strange ideology that uh, if you have a sexual desire and it comes naturally and consistently, then that is part of who you are. That is part of your identity, and that is something that you should satisfy. And this is actually something that's totally contrary to the Bible as well. The Bible rather tells us that we have to be people that learn how to uh, live in holiness, right? Look at this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Just because something comes naturally to you does not mean that it is inherently good. And if you stop to think about this, like, you, you understand that, right? Like, a lot of us have very natural impulses that are very much not holy. Um, and, and those can be outside of the area of sex as well. And so sometimes this idea of natural impulse is used to support any sort of kind of sexual thing that we want to embrace. Oftentimes I hear it as something that says, well, you know, God can't be against homosexual practice because it's something that's so natural for a good number of people. Arguing that God created people with this desire and therefore it must be good. But this is mistaken, right? Like, like God is, is very clear in his scripture that, that homosexual practice is outside of his design for what sex is. It doesn't show the image of the gospel that marital sex does. It fails to show the diversity in God's creation there. How these diverse image bearers that were separated are coming back together. And also, biblically speaking, and, and I, I want to say this as gracefully and lovingly as possible, but I want to be honest with you. There, there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Okay, our, our culture uses that term, but biblically speaking, what is marriage? It's the joining of man and woman, the, the male and female coming together in this union. We, we may apply that term now in our culture to a, a homosexual relationship, but frankly, from a biblical perspective, that is not possible. It's, it's, there, there's no indication whatsoever that that's something that, that can be done. And this is really hard to accept for a lot of people. And honestly, if you're someone that's, that's struggling in this area, I, I, I have compassion for you. And, and, and God has compassion for you. Like, every single one of us has a brokenness that, that God wants to address in our lives. Like, every single one of us experiences this reality of, of fighting against sinful desires of the flesh. And so, it may not be this area. For, for others, maybe it's, it's uh, fighting against greed. For others, maybe it's just even fighting against a really strong desire for heterosexual sexual immorality. With all of these things, though, God calls us to lay down our sinful desires, our sinful impulses, and sacrifice those at the foot of the cross and say, I am going to follow you no matter what the cost is. And you know, I, I think part of the reason we struggle with this so bad is hard, especially in the area of homosexual practice, because our, our culture has taught you that if this is a, a desire that you have, that this is your identity, that this is who you are, and therefore, when, when God uh, says that uh, condemns homo homosexual practice, you feel like it's a rejection of you as a very person. And I'm here to tell you, that, that is a lie. You, that is not who you are as a person. And, and God can absolutely condemn a behavior that you may find coming natural to you without condemning who you are as a person. You are not defined by your sexual orientation. And you know, I think that, that we're, we have our identity so wrapped up with, with sex that honestly we, we elevate it pretty much to the, the level of God where we think like you have to have sex, you have to have marriage to be able to be satisfied and fulfilled in life. And this is another one of those areas where our culture just misses the point. We see sex as God versus, rather than a gift. It treats sex as God itself. Right, think about it. How do we treat sex in our culture? It is consistently glorified through art, like music, movies, shows, all that kind of stuff. It occupies our thoughts on a consistent basis. Great effort and money is expended in pursuing it. 
It's seen as a source of satisfaction in life, something that gives a person value, right? So often, why are we seeking sexual relationships? It's because we feel insecure about ourselves, and we need uh, to feel desired by someone else to feel like we have value. It's something that many of us even shape our identity around. And you know, sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it makes a terrible God itself. It points us to the creator, but it can't satisfy us the way that he can. God's design for sex is so much better than what we've made it. We've cheapened the precious gift that he's given us. He's designed it for his glory and for our good. And so with his glory, we see the beauty of creation displayed. We see the gospel. We see this picture of of diversity and union. We see the intimacy that's unbreakable with the commitment that he makes to us. And it glorifies him. But we also see that sex is for our good. God has designed your body. He knows. uh, He's designed your soul. He knows everything about you so much better than you do. So much better than anyone writing a blog post. So much better than your parents. God knows you and how he has designed you. And how to best satisfy you. And you know, there may be commands that we don't understand right now or that are hard for us to accept, but he calls us to walk in obedience. We're called to be people that taste and see that the Lord is good. And sometimes his commands don't always make sense to us, but we need a transforming of our mind to be able to see that what he said is actually better than what we would do. But I would tell you, God is not trying to rob your joy, right? Like if God is the good God that we believe that he is, which I am convinced that he is, a good father, he is never trying to rob your joy by, by any sort of commandment that he gives you. And so we feel this tension though, right? Because sometimes it's hard for us to believe. So I want to end my sermon by um, just giving you some practical steps of, okay, what can I do to be someone that starts to walk more in line with what God's design for sex is? Okay, and and I have seven things, but I'll move relatively quickly through them. And, And the first is that, man, we need to be people that see the big picture, right? That's, as I was saying, sex is something that points to God, but it is not God itself. Appreciate it for what it is without trying to make it into something more than what it is. This is so helpful in a few ways. First off, when sex is not your God, it allows you to be content in your singleness, right? Like you can still desire marriage. You can desire that hopefully you'll have a a God-glorifying sexual relationship with your spouse someday. But the reality is it's not what life is about. And if, if you end up being single your whole life, you didn't miss out on the point of life. It brings contentment. Also, it allows you to not be disappointed by sex when you get married. You see, I think some of us, even if we're, we're trying to follow the rules and be pure, we still kind of have sex as a God in our life. And so you're expecting that, yeah, I'm going to follow the rules, I'm going to follow the rules, but one day when I get married, that's when like, all the most amazing things are going to happen, and that's when I'm going to f- feel fulfilled, and, and it's going to just be you know, rainbows and fireworks and butterflies, and it's just there's going to be nothing that can compare. And really what you have is your, your God is still sex. It's just wrapped up a little bit different. You're still looking for it to be what satisfies you on the deepest level. And I think, unfortunately, some of us even uh, have been fed lies in the church in this area where there's this idea of just be pure, just be, pur- just be pure, and then God's going to give you this amazing sexual relationship when you get married. That's not the case for everyone. Even if you do all the things right, like you still may get married and you may still find yourself having struggles in this area. But it's, it's the, the point of the gospel and the point of following Jesus isn't let me do this so I can, can kind of get something else in the end. It's let me follow Jesus so I can have God because he is what life is about and he is the greatest gift, far better than any sort of other gift he could give me. You know, after we hit that big picture down, this is kind of related, but I think we need to be people that move from rule keeping to image bearing. The sexual ethic of God's kingdom is about so much more than just keeping the rules, right? Like rather than just trying to white knuckle it and and obey God's commands, even though we really don't want to, we want to be people that have our minds transformed to actually see things the way that he sees them, right? Understanding that we're image bearers of God and what we do with our bodies and and how we, uh, what we do with sex is like related to the way that we can, can picture him to the world, 
There's a transformation of worldview that needs to take place. Romans 12.1, I read earlier um, about this idea of having your bodies as a living sacrifice, but it goes on in verse 2 to say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we have to be people that are seeking the renewing of our minds. We've lived in this culture for so long, like most of us are carrying a whole lot of brokenness, a whole lot of baggage, and believing a whole lot of lies. And we need God's supernatural invention to even help change our minds and start to see things the way that he sees them. And one of the things that we can do to help with this is my third thing, which is to be wise about our mental diet and our environment. Okay, so to start with this idea of diet, we think sometimes about the food that we eat, right, and how it affects our bodies. There's that old adage, like, you are what you eat, right? You understand what you're putting into you is helping form you as a person. Well, the same is true mentally. We, we all have a mental diet, and if we uh, choose to, to put in the good stuff, that's going to help, right? Like, it's putting us in a better position for success. Choosing to read his word, you know, go to church, be around people that are, that are expressing this godly sort of view of sex. And also we understand that just like food, if you're eating a lot of bad stuff, it's going to have a bad impact on you. We can be people that choose to cut out a lot of the bad stuff from our mental diet. What are the kinds of music, movies you're watching, pictures that you're looking at, shows that you're, you're watching, books that you're reading? What kind of stuff are you feeding on? Because that's affecting the formation of your mind. And, you know, we also need to be careful not just with our mental diet, but what is the environment that we're in? Like, what kind of situations do you find yourself in all the time? Physically, you need to be wise about the situations that you put yourself in, right? If you're dating someone and you, you really value sexual purity, you want to make sure that you don't uh, move into this place of physical intimacy before you have that level uh, of commitment that comes with marriage, then there, there's just some wise things that you can do about the places that you choose to spend time. Uh, I've talked to, to so many couples that, that really struggle uh, with the area of sexual purity, and oftentimes it comes back to they're, they're making bad choices about the environments they're putting themselves in. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but it sure would help to not be hanging out at night alone in your apartment together, right? Like you're, you're setting yourself up in a spot where you're likely to fail. And you know, we need to be careful about the environments where not just physically, but also digitally, right? Like be careful about the kind of digital streets that you walk down. Um, Proverbs 7, 6 to 9, it kind of tells this whole story about uh, sexual morality, but uh, I'll just read verses 6 to 9. It says, At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed the, among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. And he talks about how this, this young man would be led away by this, this woman and, and into uh, sexual morality. And I think a lot of times, like, we, we do that, right? Like, we find ourselves walking down streets where we know that temptation is going to happen. And this is especially true on the internet. What kind of websites are you visiting? What kind of places are you putting yourself to, to where you, you understand that they are going to lead you towards something that's not going to be healthy for you? You know, a, a fourth thing I would say we can practically do is choose to get help, right? Like, we, we live in this tension of a, a culture that we have now versus the, the culture of God's kingdom. It's not easy to, to live faithfully to the Lord. And so there's, it's, it's okay to need help. We all need it. Uh, Daniel talked about the event that's going to be happening tomorrow uh, at RISE. I encourage you, man, if you're struggling with sexual brokenness, you need healing, you need the transformation of your mind, like, go to something like that. I also encourage you, man, use the people around you as the support network that we're designed to be as the church. Like, confess, be vulnerable, bring things to the light. As you do that, it's, it's something that can be very powerful in helping release you from a lot of the shame that you have of trying to hide something all the time. Get prayer from trusted friends that are willing to actually go to the Lord before, uh, go before the Lord for you. You know, you may even need to consider getting Christian counseling or uh, getting involved with a small group that can specifically help you through some sexual struggles. But we need to be people that take this seriously and understand that sometimes, pretty much all the time, we need help on some level in being able to walk 
in, in line with God's design for sex. And finally, we should be people not just that, that get help, but also that give help. Like you, be a person that is available to your friends. Like pray for your friends. I, I had a couple friends in college that were um, trying to kick a, a pornography addiction. Um, and they were committed to really helping each other with this. And I remember they would, uh, if one of them fell in, into looking at pornography, the other one would fast. I think it was like two or three days or something. Like not the, not the one who, who fell into sin, it was his brother that would fast for him uh, during that time. Just as they were committed to really trying to help each other um, overcome this, this addiction in their lives. You know, but, but not only can we be people that, that pray for each other, that we're, we're there to, to help our friends, but also we can help a lot by just choosing not to be a stumbling block in the first place. This is a consistent thing that we're called to in Scripture. Um, Romans 14, this is talking about meat, uh, but the, the, the principle applies is, therefore stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. That is a great principle that we should live by. We should be thinking, is my behavior causing a brother or sister to stumble in some way? Jesus made a similar comment about um, causing children to stumble. And you know, I, I think we don't, take this seriously enough sometimes, especially it's tough in our culture, um, with, with a lot of the clothing standards even that are going on now. Um, man, I understand that, that there's nothing in the Bible that tells you this is what you can wear, this is what you can't wear, right? Like, and, and clothing in many ways is a, a product of culture. But we do have to be thinking when we're making our clothing choices, like, is this something that reasonably is going to cause another Christian to, to stumble sexually and to be having lustful thoughts. Um, I feel like our culture is moving in a direction where this is more and more and more commonplace, and, and we might have to start being more and more countercultural in the types of ways that we choose to dress. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I go to the gym, and, and a lot, it's very, very common to see people that are pretty much in nothing more than underwear at this point. And you have to be thinking, how is that, that may be the common thing that, that you, you may feel like you want to fit in with the culture, but you have to say, what kind of impact is this having on the people around me when I, when I choose to reveal my body like that? Um, now, everyone ultimately is responsible for pursuing purity themselves, but we sure as heck have a, a role that we can play in trying to help make it not as difficult. You know, think about the things that you're posting online. What's your Instagram look like? Like, what are you trying to accomplish with the pictures that you're posting? I think a lot of the time we're maybe trying to, to, to lead people into a place that we shouldn't be leading them. You know, one other thing that we can do to uh, have a, a kingdom culture sexual ethic is to be people that live on mission. When you're living on mission, walking in sexual purity becomes so much easier. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The most success I've ever seen in my life in fighting against purity is usually, uh, sorry, fighting for purity, fighting against sexual, sexual morality, has not generally come from a direct head-on confrontation with it. That's valuable and necessary sometimes. But the, the, the biggest thing that's helped me is just legitimately focusing on living for the Lord and with the Lord. You know, I... Uh, I remember reading a book by Francis Chan one time, and he was talking about this concept. He said, uh, it's, it's hard to run and eat Twinkies at the same time. <laughs> right? It's the idea, like, you have these two behaviors that are contrary to one another. And, and by choosing to run, not only are you uh, getting rid of some of the bad effects of the Twinkies, but it's hard to do it at the same time. You wouldn't be able to breathe very well, right? Like, it's the same as true with us. When you wake up every day and... and, and, and consistently throughout the day you're saying, how do I live with the Lord? How do I live for the Lord? How do I please him? How do I live on mission? How do I be a light? You find that that system of thinking in and of itself, even though it's not even directly tied to, to anything sex related, inherently starts to keep you away from a lot of these kind of sins that we may be prone to falling into. And you know, if you do this, not only is it something that will help you a ton, but it could make a world of difference in the life of someone else as well when you choose to consistently live on mission. You know, I, I came across the story of a, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield when I was doing uh, research for this sermon. She has a really powerful testimony. She was 
a, uh, <clears throat> a lesbian woman that was teaching as an English professor at a large university. And uh, she was, by all measures, like a very good person, like cared a lot about helping others, cared a lot about um, morality, social justice, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But she hated Christianity. And, and the reason was because, you know, she saw the Christian worldview as an attack on the very essence of who she was. And so one day after, um, I forget what it was that had triggered her, she saw something that was coming up and she just had enough and she decided she was going to write an article for the local newspaper just kind of blasting the stupidity of Christianity. And uh, she wrote this article, it got published and she got a lot of letters in response to it. Some people liked what she wrote, some people didn't like what she wrote. Uh, but then uh, she got a letter that kind of surprised her. I'm going to read a few quotes from her testimony here. It says, The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. <laughs> the, the, the letter didn't stay in the trash, though. She said she couldn't help but later get it out of the recycling bin. And uh, with that, she ended up starting to form a friendship uh, with, with this guy. It says, uh, with, uh, re reading from her again, with the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as the blue sky. That's not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. So this guy, his wife, just continued to love her, continued to have honest conversations with her. Their friendship starts to grow. And eventually, she starts reading the Bible. I'll, I'll go on to quote her here. She says, I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. It fought, I fought against it with all my might. Then, one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. <clears throat> And as she's there, she comes eventually to meet Jesus. It wasn't that morning. I'll, I'll actually go on to read what she has to say. She says, then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, orphaned and naked. <clears throat> In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately, of the solace of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. <clears throat> we have a God that wants to heal brokenness, 
that wants to transform lives, and he does. He does. He wants to do this in you, and he may want to use this, to use you as someone that he gets through to another person with, just as he used Ken and Floyd to help Rosaria. And as Rosaria came to Jesus and drank tentatively at first and then passionately, she saw that she needed to cling to the cross. And, and that's the last thing I have to say is that, man, if we want to be people that walk in line with the culture of God's kingdom when it comes to sex, we must be people that cling to the gospel. If you fall, keep getting up. Remember the grace of God. Don't ever let momentary failure stop your commitment to pursuing the Lord. If you made the wrong decision today, you have the opportunity to make the right decision tomorrow. Do not let Satan stop you from ever choosing to make the right decision. Don't let him ever stop you from continuing to get up. You know, I have my own issues and and sexual brokenness, just like I'm sure everyone else in this room does. Um, Like the vast majority of men uh, growing up in 21st century America, like I've had my exposure and problems with with pornography. And, uh, you know, you like to think sometimes, oh, these things just go away magically. Um, And, you know, everything's better. It's just, oh, you know, you had this old thing and and now everything is different. It's just easy breezy. You walk in righteousness. And yes, God gives us power to walk in righteousness, but it's still a battle that we have to choose to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh every day. And even after I became a pastor, this was a couple years ago, I remember... um, having a, just a, a bad weekend where I'd, I'd succumbed to sexual temptation. I remember looking at pornography the, the day before I walk into church on a Sunday and uh, my friend Kyle, who's up at Buffalo, was, was preaching. And uh, I remember what we were preaching on that day. <clears throat> it started like this in Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. There is no limit on God's forgiveness as you continue to get up to repent of your sin and choose to pursue him. If Jesus tells us to forgive this way, don't you think that he will too? My failures don't define me. They're not going to be something that I let hold me down, and I pray that you will not let that be the case for you either. Don't let your sin define you. Whatever your past may be, whatever current struggles you may have, Jesus wants you to bring them to him and lay them at the foot of the cross because he died for every single one of those. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And you know, as that blood was poured out, the gospel shows us not only God's grace, but also his power. Because the gospel doesn't end with Jesus on a cross. It moves to an empty tomb. Shows that God has the power not just to forgive, but also to overcome sin and death. And do not let Satan tell you otherwise. Right now we still battle the weakness of the flesh, but one day God's kingdom is going to come in fullness. And man, I I look forward to that day. But as we wait, eagerly await that Savior for his, his return, let us be people that live as image bearers that God has made us to be that don't let our brokenness and our failures and our sin define us, but rather let them be something that drives us to the cross and let the cross and let even sex itself be something that shows us the beauty of our God and the way that he wants to unite with us. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for who you are.
you're powerful, you're, you're, you're mighty, you're strong, you're awesome. You, you don't fall the same way that we do. Yet you have compassion for us and we thank you for that. God, I thank you that, that you're aware of our weaknesses. You're aware of the, the things that we hide in the closet, the things that we're too shamed to speak to other people about. You know every bit of that. And you love us more than we can know. And I just thank you for that, God. Lord, I pray that um, you would move powerfully here. God, if there's, there's addictions that need to be laid down, if there's sin that needs to be confessed, if there's just healing that needs to happen from our, our own failures or even just things that people have done to us that were no fault of our own, God, we just pray that, that you would come and move and heal and, and show us the, the power of your grace and the power of your resurrection. Lord, may our worship be pleasing to you. Hear us as we sing. and God, I pray just as we live, it would, it would be, be lives of worship that we'd offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you day in, day out. And we love you, God, and we pray this to your son's awesome name. Amen.